It speaks to the nature of how space really brings people and nations and different religions together. We all look up at the night sky and the moon and all our boundaries are blurred. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby. I'm sorry. <laughs> who was that, Matt? That was Anusha Ansari, who, of course, her family are part of the Ansari X Prize, multi, 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 multi billionaire people. But she herself was the first Iranian astronaut, I believe. And what a lovely quote to start the show, because. Isn't that true, what she said, Matt? No, absolutely, especially considering she was talking about an Israeli project and she's from Iran. Yeah. Space brings us all together, particularly the moon. Really does. So, Matt, on this day, Wagwan. Wagwan on this day. Well, we should we should celebrate the birthday of Dr. Kimberly A. Weaver, who was born <sighs> April the 19th. But let's not say her age. No. Well, it's public record, Jamie. Oh, okay. There's no point skirting around this issue. Yeah. 1964, very famous astrophysicist, astronomer and professor, often on the telly. Her main expertise is X-ray astronomy. She credits Apollo 11 as the inspiration to become a career scientist at NASA. PhD, University of Maryland, College Park, in complex broadband X-ray spectra, of Surfeet Galaxies. That's what her doctoral thesis was in. Aha. So during her tenure at Goddard High Energy Astrophysics Lab, uh, she worked extensively with the Chandra X-ray Telescope, among others, making important observations with respect to starburst galaxies, black holes, and other astronomical phenomena. As well as working at NASA at the moment, she's also the adjunct professor at John Hopkins University in Baltimore. So she's published, she's been published in over 60 scientific journals. I mean, wow, wow. the list is pretty damn impressive, isn't it? Yep, so things like on the evidence of extreme gravity effects in MCG 63015. Rip, uh, falls off the tongue, that one, doesn't it? It's a classic. So she's also got a book out, The Violent Universe Joyrides. Oh. Through the X-ray cosmos. Yeah, I need to get that. That's kind of right up your street, isn't it? It really is. I just received my, uh, in Einstein's shadow, my black hole book. I'm very excited about that. Very cool. I've just finished reading Dr. David Warmflash's Moon Compendium. It was very good. I mean, it's got to be good. Warmflash <laughs> does not write bad books. One last fact about uh, Kim Weaver is uh, she really likes the ghost Elvira in Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit. There we go. Can't say I'm familiar. <laughs> no, I'm not familiar with that particular character, but uh, I always think it's amazing that people who've got these absolute stellar careers, writing books, writing journals, working for NASA, being a professor, and she still has time to do community theatre, acting, singing, dancing, directing, producing, and designing sets and costumes. <laughs> in her spare wow. time what the heck yeah that's impressive that kind of person always has like extra string to their bow well dr kimberly 
we think you're great. So happy birthday. Ah, there was some sad news this week. Oh, okay. And that was the passing of Owen Garriott. Ah. Who, of course, was a Skylab um, astronaut and also flew on the space shuttle in 1983. So he's, he, 1973, Space Lab 1, 10 days, and uh, 1983, 10 years later, uh, went on the space shuttle. Rest in peace, OKG. What a remarkable person. Do you know he's the first astronaut to have passed a PhD? I don't think he was the first PhD in space, but he had the earliest PhD, i.e. He'd, he'd, he'd got his PhD very early on, way before he became a astronaut or trained at NASA. So he got a PhD from Stanford University in electrical engineering in 1957. Oh, no, actually, uh, 1960. He got his degree in 1957. Uh, yeah, and then, and then flew fighter jets, was a professor, wrote 45 scientific papers before going into space. But, of course, the reason why us Brits know about him more than normal is because he's the dad of Richard Garriott, who's one of only seven ah. of the British-born astronauts in space. You okay. must remember, from he was our Astronaut of the Week, episode 102. Who couldn't forget that episode? And weirdly, Richard Garriott started following us this week on Twitter, which I thought oh, well, was... Well, there we go. What so, took you uh, so long, Rich? My commiserations go out to you, Richard, and, th- and my thoughts, but thank you for following us on Twitter. Absolutely. Commiserations and, yeah, rest in peace. What a great man. Uh, while we're on sad news, well, although is it sad news, Matt? I'm not sure it is sad news, you know, I Jamie. Mean, we, I... need to, we need to look at this with, with fresh eyes, don't we? I think that this has to go down as a very successful failure. And that, of course, we're talking about better sheet. And yes. the, so agonizingly close. It was become, a close to, one. To becoming the first commercial lander on the moon. I mean, it would have been an incredible feat. Bear in mind that neither America or Russia managed a soft landing on the moon with their first attempt. But at the end of the day, they're the first commercial company to to smash something into the moon, mm. as far as I'm aware. And there's a chance, there's actually a chance that some of the uh, objects on the Bereshit lander are intact and possibly doing their job. But we'll get on to that. We will get on to uh, that. So Modest Khan, uh, one of the guys involved, obviously, with Space IL, um, uh, he basically said, well, we didn't make it, but we definitely tried. And I think the achievement of getting to where we got is really tremendous. I think we can be proud. Here, here. Uh, it was 11th of April. It all went slightly wrong. Did you know that the lander was originally conceived by three people? Jonathan Weintraub, Yarif Bash and Kafir Damari. I didn't know that. They were in a bar in Halon near Tel Aviv, and uh, they, they, well, they were members of Space IL, and they thought, hmm, let's, let's, let's build a, uh, a lunar lander. So they, they were basically high on booze. I was going to say, all the best things get conceived over a pint, don't they, Matt? Well, like the interplanetary podcast. Well, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so do you, know, uh, do you know what caused the problem? And this is a classic. It's got to be a classic, this one. 
Uh, it's, it's software command upload, wasn't it? Yeah. To fix, to fix a sensor problem. Yeah, so you have uh. inertial measurement units, which are electronic devices that basically measure the forces that uh, your machine is coming under. So you can have angular rate, gyroscopes, accelerometers. Your, your mobile phone has a kind of IMU in it, yes. inertial measurement unit. And um, yes, it was that that was playing up. So one of the IMUs was playing up. So they sent a little software update to um, kick it back in. But that started a cascade of events that uh, shut down some of the electronics, which meant that the the main engine, which of course is this British-built Leros, um, even though Leros is built by a company, well, the, the company that own the the the, the factory, I guess we could call it in in um, Britain, is a Norwegian-Finnish aerospace defence group. Okay. Namo. Oh. It's like ammo, but with a n at the beginning. Well, I, I like it. <laughs> But that I, the last time we talked about um, uh, Leros, it was owned by another company called Moog, which is an American defense company. Oh. So it's obviously that that company changes hands all the time. But Leros is it's used on lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of different satellites, including Juno. So um, yeah, that the engine had shut down, and a lot of people were blaming the engine, saying, "Oh no, it's the engine's broken." Uh, but it wasn't the engine. It was the electronics that had gone down thanks to this software upload that had been sent to solve this IMU problem. But it really looks like that it, the the IMU failure wouldn't have caused a major issue and wouldn't have caused the loss of the spacecraft because there's redundant systems. Right. So it really was a bit of a cock up that. But I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? I mean, imagine, imagine how many of those type of events happened as Bereshit worked its way across the solar system between, in cislunar space between Earth and the Moon, yes. doing that. Re- what, what a really fantastic maneuver of of being in orbit around the Earth and then just keep widening your orbit until you suddenly cross the orbit of the Moon and then get into orbit around the Moon and then yeah. attempt your landing. And it did all of that. There was lots of anomalies on the way, space radiation blasting into the electronics and them having to do lots of different things. So they must have learned loads and loads of things. This is space, the thing, isn't it? Yeah, space is ridiculously hard, Jamie. It's very hard, a, but I tell you what, they know, they're know they going to know what to do next time. Yeah, and not only that, it did get a few photos as it as it was descending down to the moon. So yeah, one of them still... was really ace. <laughs> yeah, there's some really great, yeah. there's some great, there are some great uh, little photos that it did, but it looks like that there's a chance that the lunar retro reflector array that you talked about when we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, um, that might be intact. So David Smith of Massachusetts Institute of Technology, he said, uh, he's the guy that's in charge of the uh, actual instrument, he said that there may be a chance that uh, it survived the crash, uh, but may be separated from the main body. But what's incredible about this, he says, of course, we do not know the orientation of the array. It could be upside down, but it has a 120 degree angle of reception. And we only need one 
of the 0.5 inch cubes for detection. But it certainly has not made it easier. Oh my so, lord. So as this yeah, so as this great big little ball has rolled around on the floor, it it doesn't necessarily have to be pointed perfectly back at earth. They only need a tiny bit of it facing this way to be able to reflect the lasers back so they can do their measurements. And of it's course a fine this is, line. Yeah, it's how we know that the moon is slowly drifting away from us. That particular type type of experiment. So that's pretty incredible, isn't it? And and also all those archives that Bereshit was carrying, they might be intact as well, of course. But I love this quote from Nova Spivak, the co-founder of the Arch Mission, which is the which I believe is the archive that was similar to the one that they send in Elon Musk's car. Hmm. Um he was saying, uh, we have either installed the first library on the moon or we have installed the first archaeological ruins of early human attempts to build a library on the moon. It's a clever way of looking at it. That is a clever way of looking at it. Imagine what book would you have, Matt, if there was a library on the moon? I would take out Vallis by Philip K. Dick. It's a strong one. It is. It really is. The NASA's uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter might may actually be able to check out in the next couple of weeks the state of Bereshit at the crash site. So Ooh. we actually might have some answers. Some of, yeah, whether the the litho breaking was as extreme or not as extreme as feared. TBC. It's not all over, and it's definitely not all over because Morris Khan announced that uh, they're going to build Better Sheet Two. It was inevitable. Good luck, people. Absolutely. Now, hot off the press. Go on. Last second addition to the podcast, Jamie. Ooh. One of our very cool Discord server patrons, Rob. Go on, Rob. Sent over a beauty of a paper from Cornell University. Okay. Yeah, on the discovery of a meteor of interstellar origin. Now we're talking. Now, I know you're thinking we're talking about Humuamua. Nah, can't be. Well, no, it's inspired by Humuamua. So this is a paper by Amir Siraj and Abraham Loeb. Now, I knew Abraham Loeb was a was a uh, a familiar name. So um, he's the same person that wrote about Hamuamua being an alien light sail. Hmm. It, and we talked about that in episode 106, if you want to go back and have a little listen. And he's the one that pointed out that uh, the chemical soup on Europa might not be suitable for life. And that was episode 116. Uh, yeah, that's why I put him out of my memory. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know you're not a fan of Abraham Loeb, but this no. one's this one is. I don't so... like your negative thinking, Abraham. <laughs> well, he had positive thinking about the it might be an alien light sail. Yes, fair enough. He, you know, he's all this guy's. He's getting some. He's getting some very interesting papers out there. So this one is about how uh, looking at something like a uh, mua. Uh, allowed for a calibration of the abundance of interstellar objects. Uh, uh, and he is saying that you'd expect a much higher abundance of smaller interstellar objects, with some of them colliding with Earth, frequently enough to be noticeable. So they went back through the catalogue, called the CNEOS catalogue, looking for 
things that could have been um, asteroids coming from uh, other solar systems. Okay. And and they detected one from 2014 as originating from an unbound hyperbolic orbit with an asymptotic speed of 43.8 kilometers a second outside of the solar system. So this is an object that's come in and it uh, and using the data from this catalog of of uh, asteroids that burn up in the atmosphere they've worked out that it must have been not on an orbit around the sun but coming in from another so uh, coming in from interstellar space and they've worked out whereabouts it's coming from so it's coming from the deep interior of a planetary system of a star in the thick disk of the Milky Way galaxy. <laughs> now I'm interested. Keep talking. So, so yeah, this, so that's come in. And uh, what they're saying is that this, the, the disco- this discovery enables a new method for studying the composition of interstellar objects based on spectros- spectroscopy of the gaseous debris as they burn up in the earth's atmosphere. So if you can if you can yeah do uh, do spec- spectroscopy on the objects as they burn up in the atmosphere you might be able, and you're able to track back where they came from. Mm. You can you can actually start to work out the composition of other solar systems. Yeah, that's amazing actually. <laughs> it's pretty mind blowing, isn't it? That, but you know, this is obviously one of these fairly tentative studies. So let's let's not go overboard. But it's a very interesting. Yeah, concept. but I love going overboard. You know that absolutely. And Matt, do you know what my nickname at college was? Overboard Jamie. No, hyperbolic Jamie. <laughs> was that because the? <laughs> was that because <laughs> the way you put your uh, shorts on in in games? It's just how I. It's just how I orbited everyone. I was. It was the way that you swung in from an attacking midfield position. Um, you should have seen me. You should have seen my movement. It was your movement that was great in the game, wasn't it? It was like a butterfly. You could read the game like <laughs> Stephen Fry reads audible books. Oh, what a voice! What a voice, Mister Fry. I tell you what, we should talk about Matt. Have you got your? Have you charged your drink? I have charged my drink. Are we ready? Let's do this. So, SpaceX, who are owned by Elon Musk, drink, drink. Uh, um, how many times are we going to be wowed by the landing of boosters? And this time, three perfect landing: two on land, one out at sea on the barge. It was their first commercial launch of Arabsat, the communication satellite that they threw up into space. Uh, amazing! Did you did you watch this, Matt? Oh no! Do you know what? I was actually uh, editing the podcast. I was editing last oh. week's podcast, and I just finished. And I was just publishing it, and I literally published it just as it was, just as Falcon Heavy was taking off. So yeah, it, it was. I was I was up doing that, and uh, yeah, it was so epic. Do you know what? I I actually really did take my breath away. The the that again. The ballet of the two boosters. Of just, the land, I mean, it just it, like last time. It just doesn't look real. It looks like an animation, and then you realise it's not. I mean, three Falcon Heavy, uh, sorry, three Falcon Nines, pretty much strapped together to to become this amazing Falcon Heavy. 
So lots of up- upgrades, Matt. Mm-hmm. It, Musk said that Block 5 is capable of flying as many as 10 times with virtually no refurbishment between flights. That's impressive, isn't it? That is impressive. It's, Do you think they even give it a wipe down? I think that the one that will be incredible is the one where they fly and they fly the same booster the next day. That will be, for me, the really big moment. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've been having another, we've been having other discussions about uh, the boosters and the way that they land on, on the Discord server. And we were commenting about what Alan Bond had said about how he didn't think it was safe. Um, and everyone on the Discord server was pointing out the fact that these boosters, as they come down, if there's any, they basically aim for the sea if there's any problems. Mm. And it's only when they're verified that everything's working that they actually return, start returning back to the launch pads. Um, but maybe Alan Bomb was talking about um, using them for, you know, point-to-point transfers on the earth, I think, probably. I don't know. It's a bit of an odd one. I, I I should have pushed Alan Bond further on that point, but it was still an interesting point. Um, uh, it's definitely easier to land on an undercarriage than it is with these enormous rocket boosters landing down on, on rockets. It just seems so improbable, doesn't it? When you look at it, it's just incredible. Well, that is definitely the case. I mean, it's it blows my mind. Wow, congratulations once again, SpaceX. So... One thing that has happened since then, we did get all three boosters were recovered. However, uh, the booster that was on the drone ship, because there was such rough seas, toppled over and oh. fell in, and fell into the sea. Oh. So yeah, so so they actually. So when I said they all landed perfectly, I mean they did, but then one fell over. Yeah, so unfortunately, it's fallen over. But it does look like they're going to recover it, so it's going to come in like a sort of boat itself, yeah. and. Um, uh, Elon Musk seems to think that the engines are going to be okay, so uh, yeah. that that should Bit be interesting. Salt water never hurt anyone. Yeah, I'd, yeah, that's the sort of thing where it's like, surely that means that they can't just fly it again. But anyway, what an exciting launch! It really, really was. Are we going to get bored of Falcon heavies? I'm bloody not. They're starting. Start now. Now that they've now we've got a commercial launch of Falcon Heavy. I think it's that's gonna it's it's a bit of a game changer, isn't it? Really is game changer. I'll tell you what, just as exciting as that, Matt. Do you know what mm-hmm. I learned about this week? Have you heard of the British artist Anthony Gormley? Of course well, I know who Anthony Gormley is, yes. You know this guy, Body on the Beaches, he was famous for? Well, he has teamed up with Yale astrophysicist Primavada Nat. Tarajan, I hope I've pronounced that right. Sorry if I, I haven't. I think I think it's Priyamvada Natarajan. Oh well, let's go with that one. Um, <laughs> and they've created uh, their very first virtual reality work called Lunatic. Um, and you see what they've done there, Matt, because yeah, it's yeah. basically recreated a sensation of walking on the moon's surface. My work has always tried to explore the dialectic between the body as an object in space and the body as a place containing the infinitude of space, Gormley said. He said, our nearest neighbour is the moon and this project allows us to experience it as a found object in space, to explore its vast open spaces and swoop 
the ridges and valleys of its craters. Now, I'm really excited to go down to this. It's 180, the Strand in London, and it's until, I think, the end of April. So head down, Absolutely. get your VR set on and walk on the moon. I do love Anthony Gormley. There's a fantastic Iron Man sculpture in the centre of Birmingham by Anthony Gormley. Beautiful centrepiece. It's very, I I do, I do really like Anthony Gormley. Here we go. So it's on till the 25th of April. So you you haven't got long, head down. It's such an art phrase though, isn't it? A found object in space, Uh, a found object. It's, oh, come on. Right, anyway, but uh, Jamie... Shall yeah. we shall we go on to listen to my quick chat with David Baker yesterday? Let's absolutely do that. Any fans of Moon 2024 maybe want to cover their ears. Does contain spoilers. Ecoute, the interplanetary podcast putting the ace back into space. David, uh welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Lovely to be back. The first place we should really start is is the big news story, and that is <laughs> NASA uh, coming. Well, Pence coming out and saying it's not good enough. We need to be on the moon by twenty twenty four. What's your what's your what's your take on that? Well, I think mm, uh, it, it it can always seem a little impertinent making comments about the elected leader of another country, can't it? As though we are pontificating <laughs> about about a process over which we have no direct electoral control. But I think certainly uh, I, I, I speak regularly with a, with a lot of friends, colleagues, and work associates in the United States, and they have given me full and free permission to wax <laughs> forth on, on this disruptive and damaging president who is causing very, very serious concerns. Um, among a lot of scientists and engineers, um, at the very top, you've got an absolutely fantastic um, uh, rallying cry ambassador for space and peaceful exploration of space in Jim Bridenstine. But he is, of course, under the hammer from the White House. It's a White House appointment. And so although he has been, yes, we can do that. We're up for it. Uh, response to the president's call. Everybody beneath him is just groaning and covering their head with their hands because this ain't going to happen, folks. It just cannot. It's simply impossible. And the most concerning thing is that it's disrupting the migration from a government-centric, dominated um development program to one which is a hybrid involving the commercial sector, which is the only way we're going to get back to the moon and get on to Mars. And still that's going to need full support from the international community. And we should reflect on the fact that NASA has just completed, and in fact in the next issue of Spaceflight out at the beginning of May, I've gone into a very extensive technical discussion about the strategy that NASA had in place for 2028 landing on the moon. Well, that's the target. Nobody expects it to be in the 2020s, but but it's, it's important to have some kind of orientation. Suddenly, out of nowhere comes Trump realizing that the big shout-out of the program that he's given the nod to, getting back to the moon, is going to happen on, in the tenure of his successor. So suddenly turned around and ordered Vice President Mike Pence um, 
who who and and and, and I suppose I can quote this because it has been published. Um, Pence the poodle, as <laughs> he is known by by those who are very concerned about these these uh, these wild both claims and demands from the president um, to announce at a meeting of the National Space Council uh, suddenly an edict from the president, oh no, you've got to achieve it during uh, the period of my second term of office. Now this is always assuming he gets a second term, which is highly debatable, um, but, but here again we get into the problem where a president is using the space program for political aims and objectives. And while it's up for a lot of humor and, and uh, jesting, I think the really serious problem is that in doing so, if there was a crash program to be back on the moon within the next five years, it is going to be wholly exclusively government-led. There's going to be no space or place for the commercial marketplace. And yet it is that path that the Trump administration purports to be the one that it is taking NASA along this this hybrid between government and the private sector, which I think is is a very, very appropriate one to go through. Um, so it's disruptive. It can't happen. And I think it's very, very quietly and very quickly being retired out of the picture because all of a sudden, Pence has gone silent mode on this when I think while Bridenstine was making a lot of public assertions with bright-eyed optimism and that and that boyish uh, mischievous face he can put on when challenged by something that every sensible and sane person would say is totally impossible, um, even Bridenstine, I think, has come back and realized because uh, we, we have passed the date on April 15 when he had pledged to put up a strategic roadmap plan to get back on the moon by 2024 to satisfy the edict of Pence and the requirements of uh, Trump. So, in fact, it is being retired because it just cannot, cannot happen. Um, coupled with a few weeks after serious explanations to congressional committees that the space launch system could easily be still two to three years away from a first flight because of serious managerial malfunction and uh, technical problems and uh, a development path which went up so many dead ends and then had to be reversed out of and, and rejoin a more sane approach toward the development of this launch vehicle. It has delayed it beyond and beyond and beyond and it's it's really quite reflective when you look back to when the SLS was or emerged after the demise of the Constellation program and the Ares launch vehicle, the Ares 5. It was to have been flying by 2017. Here we are talking about apologizing because it won't be ready now until 2021 or 2022, possibly at the very earliest. And I think uh, certainly we can say goodnight to it being on the pad within the next two years. So immediately after that, you had a complete turnaround by NASA to put in a very, very logical program. And if, 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 if you feel we can, Matt, I think we should just talk a little bit about what that 2028 strategy is, because forget the 2024, <laughs> it ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny, isn't it? I mean, the, the, I just want to just quickly just cover one point, was that, that, that we had that announcement about how 
the first few exploration missions of Orion might not be on SLS. And then that was rowed back almost within a week and a half, wasn't it? And then yeah, and then some, and then we had the 2024 announcement. I thought yeah. this is surely just going to be another one that, that for me that it's like they're thinking just sort of thinking out ideas yeah. out loud and not not it's like they're not even talking with one another. It just seems to be crazy. It's Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> <laughs> but I think <laughs> I, I mean I think it, it's discrediting NASA as well among the international community because um, there was a there was quite a large space congress a few weeks ago uh, well a couple of weeks well a week ago as we as we talk now and uh, it, uh, it, 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 it brought serious head-scratching concerns from the international partnership that were moving solidly behind NASA with regard to the gateway and getting back on the lunar surface with a more permanent stay. And NASA had a very, very good, good strategic plan, which, which is the one that I've, I've explored in detail in this, in, in this next issue of spaceflight. But, but if I may, Matt, I'd, I'd like just to talk a few minutes about that. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah. Abso- no absolutely. So, mm, yeah, mm, so, so mm. we go back to the original 2028 yeah. plan, which, which yeah. I always thought was mega ambitious before someone said the 2024. I suppose that's the only good yeah. thing is that now 2028 yeah. seems, yeah. oh, or maybe that's yeah. more reasonable. Mm, mm. Well, when the gateway concept came along and was generally approved and ratified in principle, if not in signature, by the International Space Station partners, because don't let's forget already the international partnership is enabling NASA's prime flagship manned spaceflight program, human spaceflight program, um, Orion, because the most important element of Orion is the bit that keeps all the, all the equipment that maintains life aboard <laughs> the spacecraft, and that's being built in Europe and is on a rolling contract. It's not as though just the first one is being built in Europe and then the rest will be built in America. Mm. Um, there is a rolling production for the the service module for the Orion spacecraft. And I, I, it still just amazes me, having spent decades of, of initially direct involvement and latterly commenting upon the NASA Human Spaceflight Program, it just is amazing to me that um, we have reached a position where the flagship human spaceflight spacecraft in the NASA inventory is is half of which is being built in Europe, and and I, I just it it just it just blows me away when I when I think when the Mercury, the Gemini, the Apollo, the shuttle, when in fact the British aircraft industry were bidding and looking as though they would build the wings for the shuttle. There was a massive slapdown of that by the Defence Department and the State Department in, in the 1970s. And that whole work, and I, I still have the study documents on all the proposals that went from uh, British Aircraft Corporation, whatever it was in, in those days in, in the early 1970s, when NASA was looking to internationalise the shuttle programme and so have the wings built in Europe. And Britain would have been the country that most likely would have built the wings for the reusable vehicle. Um, but, of course, because NASA required the U.S. Air Force to have a very strong lobbying content in pushing the money for shuttle through Congress, they had to oversee and approve every contractual element of the mission, even though NASA was paying for it, and the Air Force didn't spend a penny on the shuttle, apart from chipping in for the development of, of the um, 
implausibly uh, ambitious Vandenberg Air Force Base dual launch capability, which, of course, the shuttle never did get after Challenger. That was shut down as an idea. Um, and the Air Force moved away from shuttle completely. Uh, here we are again now in a completely new iteration of events, and we have Europe solidly involved in the development of of the Iran spacecraft, and so the so the you 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 annoy or disenfranchise the international community support for all of NASA's future human space flight programs at your peril. But the overall strategic leadership has to come from NASA because that does have the biggest budget and it does have the biggest research, test, and development facilities for human space flight. And so it's it's natural. Um, and when NASA was looking at using the Gateway as a stepping stone to the surface of the moon for a permanent base, in the last few months, it's, it's baselined and stabilized a requirement to put four people down on the surface for seven days of continuous EVA activity. And Lockheed Martin were fast out the traps on the race to try to get a vehicle that was capable of performing that. And it came up with a single lander, um, which was conceived and devised on paper, at least, uh, last year in 2018. But the vehicle weighed 62 tons fueled and 22 tons empty. And that, of course, was far too big to be able to support with the existing inventory of launch vehicle systems. Because NASA, as well as the direction of the White House, um, wanted NASA to heavily involve the private sector with commercial launch vehicles. And when they looked at a two-stage vehicle um, for that, they realized it would already require a vehicle weighing more than 50 tons, which, which of course, was, was way beyond what any existing launch vehicle could support. And it was divided into uh, an ascent module, um, very much Apollo lunar module-like configuration of an ascent module and a descent module. And the ascent module would have weighed in the 9 to 12 ton range and the descent module in the 32 to 38 ton range. And that was still too heavy. And so the architecture was driven by the available launch vehicles. And this is a refreshing shift from the time when you were getting it. It's really like building a big skyscraper on the concept of build it and they will come in many ways, we need to reverse that and we need to have an objective before we build and devise a vehicle with a specification pulled out of the air. And Space Launch System was very much a specification pulled out of the air. There was no stated specific mission objective. It, was, it just seemed the right size of vehicle to go for a major government Saturn V heavy lifter class vehicle. Um, and so it's good to see NASA actually changing the the roadmap in order to match the practicalities of what will actually be able to launch these things rather than the parallel development. It's often said in aviation, <clears throat> the thing you never should do is build a design based upon brand new untested engine, brand new untested airframe. And this, unfortunately, has been the way the space program has been evolving. It's why it's taken so long to get things done because you have two parallel systems very often not fully completely integrating in comfort launch vehicle and spacecraft with a mission that's thrashing around among an unknown number of various options and of course we've seen that palpably with the space launch system and not knowing what to do with it asteroid missions mars mission moon mission and and so now 
at least, if Nasser is allowed to just get on with this job and not have these political interventions, the structure of this, this three-module structure, which has now defined how Nasser was proposing to get to the moon by 2028, with a rolling continuum of not permanently manned bases on the moon, but certainly frequently, much like a, a Skylab operation where you had a crew of three men going and then you had a gap. And then you returned again with a second visit, and you had a gap. And, and so this is how NASA is looking at going from the gateway to the moon, that you spend a week or two down on the surface, and then you spend a few months, and then you go back down again, or to different particular locations on the lunar surface with each of those within the overall architecture of lunar operations. So what we've got now is a three-stage system to operate from this near rectilinear lunar halo orbit. And that would be defined by the ascent module, which is 9 to 12 tons, and a 15-ton descent module, and a 12 to 15-ton transfer vehicle. Now, this is a phased evolution and development. And the RFP for proposals has gone out for the descent vehicle, which was or is to be ready by 2024. And it will have a payload capability in excess of nine tons. So you can fit the proposed nine to 12 ton ascent module on top of the descent module. And that would be able to operate from a 100 kilometer low lunar orbit for development unmanned with the descent vehicle in 2026. And then manned after several precursor test shots in 2028. Hence, you're putting people down uh, nine years from now, now NASA has issued requests for proposals on those elements as well as the transfer vehicle. And the transfer vehicle is what we used to call the space tug. And that would remain in space and shift hardware between low lunar orbit and the gateway, which is in this elliptical halo orbit. And this elliptical halo orbit is necessary because it's stable with regard to the gravitational anomalies, the mass cons and the min minicons. Um, and uh, the transfer vehicle would be refuelable. Um, it would have a capacity of 10 tons and be fully on station operational by 2028 to support the lander. And, and, and the total lander elements um, to 21 to 37 tons is quite capable of being accommodated with co-manifesting on the space launch system, and it is perfectly compatible with existing launch vehicles, particularly those from SpaceX, and the evolving launch vehicles um, from Jeff Bezos. And, and so that is a progressively doable plan. And it was to have been preceded by a series of unmanned vehicles, uh, which are already under contract. Um, and those are essentially part, part of this commercial lunar payload services or CLIPS initiative. Nine companies um, with a cumulative value of 2.6 billion over 10 years are developing before then, before the ascent, descent and transfer vehicles for supporting humans to reconnoiter and survey the lunar surface. And this is a transfer from NASA program. The resource prospector has been cancelled. 
that 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 was cancelled last year. It was to have launched in 2022, and it was to have had the objective of assessing the distribution of water on the moon, because there's much evidence for water resources, particularly in the polar regions. But this is lunar water. That's not water in either liquid or vapor state, but it's but it's in a molecular form which attaches to the grains that compose the rocks and the materials of which the moon is made. And precursor um, lunar orbiting spacecraft. Lunar Prospector, Chandrayaan, and Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, um, 10 years now since that was, was launched, have all confirmed that there's a sparse and a very thin layer of water existing in some areas around the moon. And so Resource Prospector was to have done that. But last year, early last year, it was recognized that this is going the expensive NASA over-bureaucratized route. And so the CLIPS program of these nine commercial bidders to put little landers down on the surface is offloading the experiments that were to have gone on the NASA-only prospector mission and disperse them around these commercial landers which will be, which will be flying to the surface potentially from the end of this year, although that is, is, is stretching things rather a bit. And this is where we come to the fact that I mentioned earlier that in a hurry-up, you don't have time for all these commercial bids and commercial designs because they're going to take longer. These are startup companies or little companies um, who will need time to develop and evolve these information bases upon which a proper lunar science and resource analysis program can be built. So it, it's really counterproductive to the Trump mantra of, of going private, going commercial, getting NASA out of the business of building and bureaucratizing these programs when clearly private industry, entrepreneurs, new startups, new space can do things faster, leaner and meaner and with less bureaucracy. So that's how it stands at the moment. So we don't want this dis disruption. We do not want to be on the moon within five years. Be great, be lovely, <laughs> but you'd wreck it's the wrecking ball that will come in and completely demolish all of these incremental plans that now at least are seeming to have a reasonably working mandate. And main, main elements of the, of the gateway are in fact to be the responsibility of JAXA, of ESA, of the Canadians, of NASA, and of Roscosmos. And now all of a sudden you've got this, and at this meeting just a week or 10 days ago, at this major space conference where Bridenstine came in, all bells and trumpets whistling and blaring, that, that yes, he's up for going to the moon in 2024. And by the way, I will be back by the 15th with a proper strategic plan. Well, big flat silence, and we're several days on from the 15th of April as we speak now, and no response, because you just can't make it happen. It would completely destabilize and ruin this wonderful hybrid connection between new space and old space. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's. Do you know what? The only bit of solace I was getting from 2024 announcement, because I could, I mean, it does, even I can see that it was a pretty ridiculous thing to say. Uh, and the only solace I could get was the fact that it would, for me, it felt like it was going to accelerate the this private uh, and government partnerships. But it, uh, but <laughs> now you've put that case, it's kind of, it, 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 do, it doesn't even do that. It disrupts that and, and spoils that element of it so yeah that's that's <laughs> that's quite depressing mm. um <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean so is virtually everyone that you're speaking to 
really just ignoring that 2024 and concentrating on this 2028 timeline now that it's becoming more fleshed out and we're seeing we're seeing it I think they're sharing with sympathy the embarrassment of of the real brains in NASA, of which there are of which there are very large numbers, the scientists and the engineers, um, the scientific community. And don't let's forget, we talk about NASA doing this and NASA doing that. NASA is responsible to groups like the National Academy of Sciences and to all of the various advisory bodies that dictate essentially, um, and do so to Congress in hearings, which which we don't cover enough, I think, Mm. Um, the advisory bodies that go and say, well, NASA should be doing this, and NASA should be doing that. So when we get Congress coming in and completely changing the programs put forward by the White House, and remember, every time NASA goes up with its budget proposals, and we've just had those for the 2020 financial year, technically starting October the 1st this year, it is as a result of Congress not saying, I know better than NASA, or we know better than NASA. It, it is that they are responding to, to very prestigious and erudite advice they're getting from the finest and the most highest performing science and engineering um, consortia within the United States. And, and so that is how NASA doesn't sit around a table and say, hey, what, this would be great, wouldn't it? We, we can put that with that and that with that. You, you know, it, it, NASA is caught right in the middle between very, very detailed, sensible, sane, methodical, and, and um, rational program developments recommended by the science institutes and organizations that recommend national scientific and technological strategies and between the politically, the political mayhem of the White House, and and so NASA is right in the middle of this. So it can it goes to the White House and said, we would like to do this, we would like to do that based on the roadmap we've been working toward. The White House says, either you can or you can't. And remember that the the in that decision, the the Office of Management and Budget, which is the American Treasury, if you will. Um, has to be consulted and has to agree, along with White House policy, what NASA is allowed to ask for. And then the administrator is supposed to stand up as though it's his, his perfect dream ticket of everything he wanted to see happen. Well, it isn't. He just simply has to be the, the uh, shout-out voice for what the White House has dictated NASA will do. And that's why, that's why I always put the absolutely most important segment in any space program strategy is what does the White House want about this and what does Congress what is Congress going to think about that? Because if those two are not in synergy, it's mayhem. And we saw that when Obama con- council constellation for justifiable reasons on expense and, and everything else. Um, but that's when the White House went head to head and, and we saw more disruptive um, uh, problems between the White House and Congress during the Obama years uh, when there was a stronger Democratic Congress with the Democratic president than we do under Trump, which, which is quite bizarre, really. It's just that NASA's programs are receiving huge bipartisan support, and it just so happens that Trump's America first and we can make America great again resonates with a Congress that wants to placate the concerns of its own electorate in its own states. Because remember, 
two senators for each state and representatives that were, in the early days, proportional to the number of people in that state. Um, now that's all changed because of the burgeoning expansion of the population. Um, but you've got 600-odd representatives and you've got 100 senators and they're all answerable to their electorate and in a much more direct and dynamic sense, frankly, than parliamentarians in the House of Commons are to the British electorate under what we have as an elected dictatorship, essentially, where it is expected that the government is only functional in Britain if it has an overriding total dominance. And therefore, you never get to see the true performance of an opposition. We're in these bizarre times in Britain at the moment, and I'm only exploring that issue as a comparator to how decisions are made in the United States. But in the United States, you've got virtually equal, equal numbers of both parties actually in Congress. And, and there's oohs and ahs of, oh my goodness, it's a Democratic Congress or it's a Republican Congress. But only by one or two or three, over several hundred. And so you are really, really looking with a very different animal. And the White House represents the federal interest. Grassroots America is very anti-federal, very anti-state monopoly, very anti-keep government out of the picture. And so the entrepreneurial bids of the private new space marketeers are very much in favor within the various states, while at the same time, Congress is expected to look after the big federal programs that bring money to each of these states. And that is why inherent, and I can remember supporting this when part of my job was to support the NASA hearings in Congress at, at these various deliberations and at these various hearings. One of the first questions asked was, what is the distribution of employment prospects across the 50 states? And shuttle, shuttle contracts went on the basis that, that there was a team at NASA headquarters working as to who got the various subcontracts and the component supplier base had to be proportionately spread across the 50 states. And, and that's, that's, that's the dynamic of how these programs work. So at the moment, we have a very, very full bipartisan supporting Congress for the NASA program as it's moving forward. And the only reason there's, there's quiet on this issue between the White House and Congress is that for very different reasons, one for domestic re-election <laughs> investment and the other for making America great again, the two seem to be running in synergy, but they're both looking in opposite directions for why they're supporting the program at present. And that has to be... I know it's boring. It's incredibly boring, because it's not the juiciest meat and veg of, of, of real space exploration. <laughs> yeah, I, it, I, the thing that depresses me, actually, I th is, is that space exploration should be about scientific discovery and... and Yes. And and that 2024 announcement had had nothing about what it was that we were trying to achieve scientifically and the fact that no. Pence himself and Trump for that matter are and are actually genuinely anti-science even though that that phrase just seems to be the most ludicrous phrase ever but they but they both are anti-science I mean it just seems to be at, that's for me is that's that's the most frightening part of the administration for me is that they, that that you're saying that, um, that you have all these scientific uh, bodies in uh, America that are mm. advising mm. NASA or what they should be doing. Yeah. But if yeah. you have, surely if you have an administration that d doesn't give a monkeys about that element of it, yeah. that, that could got to be extremely unhealthy. Well, let us remind our, our listeners um, that, in fact, um, Congress is a disruptor in many ways. And 
this is the thing I think which which maybe our dear British listener um, probably is too mired in in the way things happen here in the UK. <clears throat> they don't happen like this in America, and the White House probably has less traction to achieve its will than a majority party in Britain can, as espoused through the voice piece of the Prime Minister. Because none of these environmental perturbations have actually lasted in America. And yet I continue to hear the media trounce out, oh, America's anti-environment, Trump has squashed all this. In actual fact, it's all been put back by Congress. And all of those two years ago, when Trump first tried to tear out the earth science climate research and environmental analysis programs, all of those were put back by Congress. And now Trump's learned because in the budget announced a few weeks ago, all those programs are not contested. There is very, very strong restoration of climate, earth science and environmental analysis, NASA satellite and research programs. It's not just the space hardware. It's the research programs as well with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, the Department of the Environment, and with NASA itself. And all of these link into to international endeavors. So they're very, very important. And remember that each of the 50 states have reneged on the order from the White House to abandon all of their environmental programs. So while there are some disruptive programs that can be controlled from the White House, and there's one particular horror that's happening in Alaska right now where they're trying to tear out a whole area of wetlands to build a huge mining complex, which will itself require a 270 gigawatt electrical power production plant, a trench in the earth a mile wide and a third of a mile deep, fanning out from which will be mining tunnels, is going to completely disrupt. That is going ahead. So, listener, you may be aware of that announcement and then say, well, how come you're talking about it all being put back because there are some federal programs, licenses for which can be granted by the White House. And there are executive orders which can be issued by the president that ride over states' concerns about environmental issues. But to a state, every state legislature has said that they don't follow the White House mantra on disregarding environmental issues. And every single state in the union is signed up to the logic of the damage that our industrial and our prolific over-extraction of resources from the earth are doing to this earth and that it can change. And, and so we need to balance this, these shout-outs from the White House and, and the fear that seared into concerned media around the world, you know, with staring eyes, um, oh my God, it's all over. No, it's not. And, and so we need to understand that, <laughs> that, that, you know, it, it really isn't, isn't a done deal when the White House says it is. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell I'm passionate about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, the, I, it's, I, I think, I do think it's, it's a worry when you have, when you have the most powerful man in the world, if you have a, a continual undermining message, eventually derails things doesn't it i mean sure i mean yes, and, and, does, yes. and and getting back to the space program it's kind of it's kind of done that with like you said with the with the with the space program and yes. if you if you if you don't have a mission 
then yeah. then this 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 is the embarrassing thing for me is that for the last yeah. 10 or 10 15 years there there hasn't they've never really nailed down what the mission is and how no. they're going to do it and, no. and surely that that just seems to be costing billions and billions and of dollars is, is. all around the world <laughs> Yes, yeah. I think I think as well this this whole emphasis on 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 um hooking your your uh, prestige up to and and I understand space is a prestige issue um and and it, it can be an inspiring and a, and a motivating issue. And in fact I think when when you remind or when we remind ourselves again that less than 0.5% of federal expenditure um less than 0.2% of all government state and federal in america is spent on space less than two percent because we tend to forget that unlike the uk there is more money um uh, in the local government as we would say here in the uk in states expenditure than there is accumulated of 50 states than there is in the federal budget so we say 0.5 percent of the federal budget but that doesn't really say what government in america is spending so it's actually only one-fifth of one percent of all the money that's collected by governments of states and federal in the united states of america and so for that tiny amount if there were no benefits at all it will be justified on what it is inspiring, on what it is creating, on what it is enabling, and what it is doing among among the minds of young, passionate individuals. And and I think that that's very important. And I think sometimes we hitch our star on too distant a star, a destination. Mm. And and one of the concerns I've had for a very 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 long time is the casual way in which we have supported the notion that we can simply up stakes, hitch a ride on a rocket, and be on Mars within a few years. There are so many concerns that are evolving now, and I think one of the most profound was the results that came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I don't think I'm contravening any any non-advertising um, issues on talking about this, but science, one of the two erudite and prestigious peer-reviewed weekly journals, um, science was the platform that published the medical reports of the year-long flight um, with Scott Kelly and a Russian, and of course Scott Kelly's identical twin, Mark mm. Kelly, and and Scott spent 340 days in orbit on the space station, and and what has transpired from that medical result should should put shockwaves to anybody who thinks we're going to be jumping off to Mars in the next 10 or 20 or even 30 years, uh, summing up basically thickening of the carotid artery and the retina weight loss, shifts in gut microbes, reduction in cognitive abilities, that's a scary one, mm. damage to the DNA, changes in gene expression, lengthening of the ends of the chromosomes, the, it, essentially the telomeres, mm. and elongation of the telomeres replaced by accelerated shortening and loss. Um, and, and the fact that Scott quoted directly, and I'm, I'm just looking here at his direct quote, the return was much worse than the adaptation of getting up there. Um, and, and if we look at the, at the physics-driven trajectories of Mars missions, you are talking about, about um, discharging humans to an environment where two-thirds of a two-and-a-half-year trip to 
on the surface and back from Mars will be spent below 1G. We are far from understanding the consequences. And each one of those items that I mentioned, particularly with cognitive abilities, damage to the DNA, um, and also the, the problems with sight and perception, even on six-month missions, is becoming a serious concern aboard the space station, not to mention the, the very surprising, if not shock, measurement when they did a microbial analysis of the biota living on the inside of the space station in this supposed ultra-clean environment. They found it is far worse than any contained environment on Earth. Mm. <laughs> and and all of the, I mean, at, at the end of the day, this is what is going to matter to people, whether they are physically damaged, debilitated, or rendered either mentally incapacitated or genetically uh, mutated into completely different human beings. Nearly three years on space flights where only a few months at one-third G is all the respite you're going to get is a far place that we haven't begun to visit in terms of the, of the biophysiological environment we're going to put crews into. And that's important. Mm. You know, it, it, you can sketch on the back of an envelope how to get to Mars and back. We could do it now if we had the equipment. But whether you've got survivable people or what you're going to do, and as for these who want to go and stay there, hmm, there's a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> that really does kind of point the finger for the next... 30 years then that we really should be concentrating on robotic exploration of the solar system i um, believe so and and i'm i'm a child of the human spaceflight era and spent so many years immersed in it and it's fantastic but but we cannot um just as Tsiolkovsky said we cannot live forever in a cradle oh. when talking about leaving and departing earth we cannot live forever in our dream worlds of of youthful exuberance we have got to come down to reality and understand what we are giving up by devoting 60 or 70 percent of space budgets to just this surge to put a very select few humans in very distant places and we have to ask the question for what reason Hmm. And that has a multitude of answers that can only be rational if we strip away our emotive baggage that we bring to all decisions that humans make. It's the most difficult one I know, and it's a tremendous inspiration. I think we should be building bases on the moon, but I think the surface contact with humans should be, it's much like the use of technology. You should only engage with that that is enabling you to do something greater than you can without it hmm. and not make it a fascination and an obsession in and of itself. And I'm getting close here to speaking <laughs> about a fascination people have with, with social media, for instance. Yeah. And, and you, you can see this is a natural human. It's the most amazing creative tool of the 20th century that we're now exploiting in the 21st. Amazing. I am not decrying it. But it, 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 it makes it obsessive for the tool and not for the crafted product of that tool, which is the things we can do with it. So I would like to see um, on a back burner, actually, on a back burner, um, the establishment of scientific bases on the moon, just as we have scientific bases on the Antarctic continent, for a meaningful, justified purpose. But a way which now, for 
the first time we, the bow wave of exploration can be with robots. And we can do such amazing things. And I've heard it said, and I've supported this notion, that astronauts in the Apollo era could do many times what any instrument could have done. But we are not living in the age of 50 years ago. In terms of what existed 50 years ago, we are 100 centuries in the future with regard to the pace of technological development. Mm. We must not look back. We must look forward and learn that we have to do things in a different way. And, and I'm just giving the shout-out to the fact that with a balanced reason, if, if we were to triple the amount of money we're spending in the robotic exploration of the moon, we would then be able to, to provide the answers that can better frame the question. Yeah, no, absolutely. Why go to the moon? <laughs> we would have better answers because we would know so much more about surface conditions, about what we can do there. And we would know so much that robots are already beginning to tell us about the extraordinary amount. And I think that, that one of the most amazing things, and, and I think in, in looking at, at all of this, the fact that, that just that now we know that, that the, the Earth receives about 33,000 kilograms of micrometeoroids every day. And those are mostly hitting the surface of the Earth as microparticles invisible to the eye. One third of all the dust that settles on surfaces in our homes comes from space. And the moon is receiving particles without that shield of an atmosphere at velocities of up to 72,000 kilometers a second. And they are liberating what has been estimated as more than 200 tons of water a year from material thrown up into what is now being called the lunar exosphere. And that has all been determined, all of it, by robotic exploration, both at surface samples returned by the last of the Russian lunar missions and by the unmanned robotic orbiters we have had. The Apollo results took us in the wrong direction, thinking it was a totally, totally dehydrated environment. We now know that it was not because the regolith on the moon, down to about eight centimeters from which 90% of the samples came, does not contain any lunar water at all, because it's much lower in the surface and gets thrown up when these impacts create this exosphere which has been measured and observed. And this links right back to pre-Apollo, the transient lunar phenomena, or the lunar transient phenomena, as they call it in America, <laughs> which is these little obscurations that amateur astronomers were recruited to observe in the days just before Apollo. Aristarchus was most famous for this clouding obscuration of the surface. They were seeing what we now call the lunar exosphere that is now being measured by robots. There has not been a single human to correct the errors of the Apollo results. That surely is a shout-out for robots. Gosh, I mean, it, yeah, things like the Indian space program would be a lot healthier if they abandoned human space flight, I suppose, and, and all around the world. It, it, it's, it's, not a very good, it's not a very good message for human space flight, I suppose. Um, I think we do need to go there. We need to expand out, but we need to put this greater emphasis on finding the answers to the questions we haven't yet asked. Thanks, thanks very much for joining me again, David. And um, and I'll, I'll definitely good look forward to this this month's space flight. Now, now I'm getting them again. They're arriving at my luck. house. Good, yes. Good luck with the house makeover as well. <laughs> thanks very much. All right. Okay. Cheers, David. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. The Interplanetary Podcast is 
alive! There's David's thoughts for the day. We veered quite a lot into weird politics there. but We love you, Mr. Baker. Incredible, as always. I, Jamie, we don't have a space fact, do we? That's the one thing I forgot to do. Oh, damn. Well, I've got a space fact. Come on, then. I really, really, really love space. <laughs> that, is a, that is a space fact. Wow. I hope you were blown away by it. Idiot. <laughs> right. Are we going to get one? Like, no one gets to this bit of the show anyway. <laughs> <laughs> is there anyone listening? Is it just it's us just, It's just us other? two talking to each other now. Uh, well, if there is anyone listening still, um, Matt, if you've enjoyed this show mm-hmm. and maybe you're new to the podcast world, mm-hmm. what would you say the next steps are? I think the next steps would possibly be to... Uh, run over to wherever you listen to podcasts. It might be iTunes, especially iTunes, actually. And uh, why not leave us a review, particularly if it's a lovely five-star review. That would be really, really excellent. And if you love us loads, you could pop over to our Patreon page where there's a little bit of extra content and you can be part of the journey and join us. Join us. Join us. As correct. Sorry, that seemed a bit sinister. I mean, join us. Join us and become a spodcat of some description. Uh, Oh, I'll tell you what. I mean, what an elite crew our patrons are. Well, I absolutely love them. We're going to give the big shout out at the uh, the end of next week's podcast uh, to the beautiful people who entertain me on the Discord server who continually email and Facebook and, and tweet. It's great. We love it. Wait, Matt, are you saying that there's another week for people to get a shout-out if they join this elite club? Big time. Big time, big time. OMG. And we've had some, and we've had some new members, so they're going to get their big shout-out. Love them. Well, I'd like to uh, wish everyone a happy Easter weekend. Uh, put some sun cream on. It's going to be warm out there. and. Uh, Just remember, Easter is all about chocolate. Thank you. Ah, yeah. Happy Easter, everyone. And uh, and, or happy chocolate eating festival. What's your favourite Easter egg, Matt? Ooh, all that. Mine's the the red lint balls. (laughs) I don't think I have a favourite Easter egg. I think I I, I genuinely make myself sick. (laughs) And so, and it actually kind of puts me off chocolate for a bit. Most of you um, won't have had a dinner with with Matt, but I have had many, and he eats like a, a starved dog. <laughs> so God knows what he's like around Easter eggs. Oh uh, no, I do eat very very fast. It's it's a very it's a big problem, Jamie. Mastication is very important, Matt. I'm just worried about your guts. I know. Well, I think that's someone told me not to masticate, so I I um. <laughs> You'll go blind. <laughs> so I just got into the habit of swallowing my food. Anyway, on that note, bye bye, Spodcats. Goodbye. Goodbye.